Um, hello everyone, welcome to Drisha. This is part of our winter's man where we're focusing on food in general. So in the mornings we're learning about, we're learning um, a parak from Masachet Brachot about Brachot, but Brachot on food in, in particular. Um, and then in the afternoons we have some short series on Birkhada Mazon or food at, um, or like Maimonides approach to food, things like that. Um, and then in the evenings we're doing this. So this week we have a great lineup of uh, speakers who are both Torah scholars and people who produce food from the source. Um, and I'm very, very excited for that. And then next week we have another series, which I hope you will join us for also, which is um, less about where food comes from and more about where food is growing. So um, our world um, has enough food for all the humans who live on it, but the food doesn't get to all the people who need it in equal ways. And so we'll be talking about Jews who are involved in that process and also learning um, with me, um, some of the halacha and, and, and then Tanakh texts also um, about different approaches that you can take into food distribution um, and food scarcity and food plenty um, over time. So that's this week and next week. Um, and all of those you can sign up for at tushin.org slash coffee. Um, but without further ado, as I mentioned, the speaker who was advertised for tonight, Leon Kovitz, is ill. Um, he will be fine, please God, but um, he just wasn't up for speaking tonight. So, but we're thrilled that we have Rabbi Didier Greenberg, who's just going to speak twice this week. So if you love him tonight, um, you can come back and learn more from him on Wednesday. And we're so, so, so thrilled that he is here. And let me tell you more about him. Um, Yadidia is an Israeli-born chocolate, aspiring poultry farmer and educator. In his 20s, he learned to issue about that iron for three years, where he became interested in animal-related mitzvot. A few years after leaving Yeshiva, Yedidia decided to learn shkita so that he could process his own naturally raised animals. And after receiving his Kabbalah, which is shkita certification from Rabbi Yisrael Landrin in the fall of 2011, Yedidia went on to work in a kosher beef slaughterhouse. During this time, Yedidia studied humane animal handling techniques, and he also began teaching about shkita and animal well-being in venues such as Yeshiva University, Vermont Sterling College, Chazon, Warren Wilson College, and other places including now Drisha. Um, and today, along with working to start Lev Farm, which is a forthcoming sustainable standard bread heritage poultry farm, Yedidia gives in-depth presentations about Shkita and provides Shkita training to a diverse range of students and institutions through his personal business called The Kosher Cut. Um, without further ado, Yedidia, thank you so much for being here. And his source sheet is in the chat. Thanks so much, uh, Rabbanit uh, Sarna. Um, hi, everybody. I'm Yadidya Greenberg. Uh, it's nice to see you all here virtually. Um, hope everybody's doing well. Okay, so um, I'm just going to start off by just telling you all a little bit about myself. Um, once that's done, I am going to, uh, we're going to talk about Shrita, um, how it's done. And, um, and uh, we're going to talk about the Shrita knife, some of the laws of Shrita. Uh, we're going to be um, mostly, uh, as you can see in the um, in the handouts, working from Shulchan Aruch, um, which is the uh, preliminary, the the primary uh, book of uh, of of everyday halacha of uh, of the laws of uh, of Judaism, um, and we're working out of Yore Dea, um, chapters one through twenty-eight. That is where the laws of Shechita are found, one through twenty-eight. And we're going to just doing some excerpts, which um, which talk about the primary, some of the bedrock um, practices and halachot of shechita, especially in terms of how we do it today. Um, and then 
And then after that, we're going to talk about stunning uh, and some of the non-kosher forms of slaughter, which are common today. And then we're going to do a little bit of an animal welfare analysis of some of the different methods of slaughter and try to get uh, to the question, which I think a lot of people have, which is kind of this debate where there's two sides that are kind of brought to it. One side is saying that shechita is absolutely painless and immediate, and the animal dies immediately, and it ascends to, to heaven in a cloud of glory. And then the other side, which would say shechita is a um, barbaric, outdated, and cruel form of slaughter, and it should be banned. Um, those are kind of the two extremes uh, which you see out there, and neither of them have much to do with reality. They mostly have to do with um, just these general ideas that people have that are out there, really that are based on nothing um, in the real world. So what we'll try to do is get into the real world of shechita today and what that really means, what really happens, and base some of that on uh, the halachot, which we've been following for thousands of years in the Jewish world. Um, and then the next class, we are gonna talk more about poultry farming, poultry, and uh, get into some halachic issues concerning, um, concerning poultry. So, uh, but today we're going to focus on the shechita. And um, okay, so I'm just going to tell you guys a little bit about myself to start, and then we'll get into the uh, into the sheets. So I, uh, as I said in the uh, introduction, there I grew up on a kibbutz um, until I was eight years old. My kibbutz had chickens and cows on it and fields of every kind of uh, vegetable and fruit uh, you can imagine pretty much. And I used to love uh, being out working in the fields and I really enjoyed uh, the cows. That was my favorite part. It was a dairy as you see on many kibbutzes. And I liked the veal cattle who were in their crates and I would put my hands inside the crate and they would suck on your hands and they loved sucking on your hands, which was very cute. And uh, they weren't so happy probably, but um, I wasn't so aware of it at the time. And, uh, and so that's kind of how I grew up very much on the land and uh, working with animals. And I grew up with a real love for animals throughout my life. And uh, I did not grow up religious, I grew up secular. It was a secular kibbutz in Israel. And then I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, which is a very kind of new agey place, um, very earth conscious, as you would say. And I grew up with a lot of that earth conscious vibe. Um, I really uh, liked wild animals and preservation and I cared a lot for animals and I grew up with a real ethic of caring for animals and animal suffering. I became a vegetarian at some point, um, but uh, eventually I realized that the industry uh, beyond the meat industry, uh, beyond just killing animals, there was a lot of animal suffering in the industry. And I just kind of stopped being a vegetarian because um, I just didn't really see much of a point in it. And so when I was 20, I started to become religious uh, I was 19, I was starting to get into Judaism. And when I was 20, I went, I returned to Israel uh, where I grew up. My parents are American, where I grew up until I was eight. And, um, and then I went to Yeshiva and I went to Yeshivat Bat Ein, um, uh, which is a uh, Orthodox, um, but a little bit, uh, a little bit kind of that hippie-ish earthy vibe to it. And, um, and I really was interested in the animal related uh, portions of Judaism. That was a real interest for me. And that continued. And after yeshiva, sometime after, I really decided I wanted to eat more ethically. And 
one of the things that I wanted to do was to be able to slaughter animals and really understand that process and understand the shrita process and then be able to raise animals ethically. So I, uh, I went and I studied shrita. Um, we brought a teacher into Colorado and he taught a bunch of us and I learned shrita. And then after that, I found a job in a kosher slaughterhouse in Nebraska. And I worked there for three years and I started learning about all, all the things and I eventually decided I wanted to try to um, do some good for animals uh, professionally. And um, this is a, now there's a very long story of different things I was involved with and different things I was doing. But uh, let's just end that with today I work. Um, one of the things that I do is I'm working to start this standard bread heritage poultry farm. Um, and which, you know, standard bread heritage poultry would consider to be the gold standard of animal welfare. And then also I am working as the executive director of the Good Shepherd Conservancy, which is working to preserve, um, it's not related to kosher, it's working to preserve standard bread heritage poultry in the food market. Um, whereas most of those birds are used for show, maybe backyard pets, and we're working to preserve those as food and uh, continue that tradition in American agriculture. So that's a lot of what I do today. And then the other thing I do is I teach kosher slaughter, although I'm kind of trying to get out of that and just work towards, towards these other pieces. But I do also teach people about kosher slaughter. And um, Lev Farm is part of a nonprofit called Healthy Kosher Foods. And one of the things that we do is we do teach people about um, kosher slaughter and, and do advocate for the humaneness of kosher slaughter. And, um, and against kind of bans against kosher slaughter. So um, now, but so with that uh, kind of just introduction to who I am and, and what I do. Uh, so what we're gonna be focusing on today is the kosher and, um, and what I'm gonna try to give you guys is as unbiased as possible considering my position, um, a view of kosher slaughter and, and also other forms of slaughter and try to bring you into that world and what it takes to produce meat for the public and um, both in the kosher and non-kosher manner. All right, so, but in order to start all that, we wanna try to understand what kosher slaughter is. So I wanna first um, put it up to the group. Does anybody have some ideas about what is kosher? What, what is kosher? What, what does it mean? If I remember right, there's uh, some kind of special knife involved. I think it's a particularly long and sharp knife. Lar okay. Okay, good. A long knife involved. That is correct. Anything That's else? Sharp, what do you do? A sharp, clean cut. A sharp, clean cut. Good. All right. Um, then you have to examine the internal organs, the lungs. The sure. Okay, examining the internal organs, checking for trefoot for a pre-existing illness or wound in the animal, which would render it unkosher. If an animal has a pre-existing wound or illness that would, by the rabbi's standards, have caused it to die within a year, it is not considered kosher for consumption. This would be mortally wounded, therefore not kosher. Any other ideas about what kosher is, what it entails? Does it have to be one single cut? One single cut. Very good question. We're going to talk about that. Good. So one cut. One cut. That's a good question. We're going to talk about that. I mean, any other ideas? You know, where? what do we cut? Oh, neck. Right. We cut the neck. Does anybody think about, know about what we cut on the neck? 
the carotid artery. Right. Okay. Carotid artery. Anything else we might be cutting on the neck? Jugular. Jugular. Okay. The esophagus. The esophagus. Okay, good. Now we're getting closer to the sources. So let's, with that, go right into the sources. So a lot of people just think about the arteries, um, which we cut, and I'm going to share my screen here. Okay. I'm going to share this on the screen. Everybody sees my, um, everybody sees the, uh, okay, the Shkita uh, presentation PDF here. Okay, so in order to understand what Shkita is, first we under have to understand what you shecht. A lot of people understand you cut the neck, but there's always a question of how much you cut on the neck. Um, in Halal Slaughter, this is kind of like a thing that they have, this thing that you cut the neck, but there's not really a lot of discussion about exactly what. Well, in kosher, you know, we're always very, very exact in Jewish law. They always talk about all the little particulars. So we have to cut exactly a certain amount um, in the neck. And the way that we, um, we establish what that is, is through the simanim or the signs and the shior shechita, which is the measure of the shechita. The simanim are the signs. So in order to uh, establish that, let's read the first, the source from Shulchan Aruch Yoridea 21, one through two. Um, does anybody want to read the Hebrew there? Sure. Kamahu shior shechita shel hakaneh veshet. Veshet. Veshet hameula sheyachtechu shnehem bein babehima o bein baof lazayit kaven hashochet veim shachat rov echad mehem baof verov shnayim babehima uvachaya shechita tokshera. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, anybody that just needs the English can can read in English, but I'm going to go over the Hebrew and just um, translate it just bit by bit there, just so we have it really, really clear. How much is the shiur shchita? What is the measure of shchita? Of the kane, the trachea, the haveshet, and the esophagus. Okay, so we've established right there what is the, the what is the amount of the shechita needs to be shechted when and then when you're cutting the esophagus and the trachea, the esophagus and the trachea are the signs. We don't rule a shechita by if you cut the arteries or any of the veins. We base it all on the esophagus and the trachea. Okay. Now, hashchita um, hameula, the the preferred shechita, right, the best shechita. Um, is shechtechu shnehem bein bebehema ubein baof that you should cut them both completely, sever them completely, whether it is in a mammal, in a behema, or in an of, or in a bird. Okay, so what you want to try to do is cut and sever the esophagus and trachea completely. You know that would be so. If you're looking at a neck here, um, if you were looking at it, if it was cut, let's say, and you were just looking at it from the top, you have a trachea here. You have the esophagus behind it, and then you have a neck bone behind that. So what you want to try to do is cut both of these completely, and you stop at about the neck bone. All right, that is the shiur shchita amiula. That's that is the lechatchila, the shiur shchita, which you can see here. Lechatchila, kanibaveshet, the esophagus and trachea fully severed. All right, velazeit kavena shochet, and this is what the shochet should try to do. The shochet should try to cut. Both signs completely. 
But if he shechted the majority of one in a bird, or the majority of two in a mammal, uh, and also the, the majority of two in a wild animal, which would be like a wild animal, like a deer, okay? is kosher. So that's a bidyevid. So if you're, you're, tr- you're always trying to sever both, but if you happen to only sh- sever the majority of one in a bird, or the majority of both in a animal in a mammal, yishchita is still kosher. All right. So these are the signs that we base the shchita off of. Um, the the different veins are going to be in the middle here, um, around here, on the outside of the uh, of of the signs. So now, if you cut both signs, in almost all cases, you will also cut the the veins. But if you were to try to only cut the veins, which is what a lot of backyard, a lot of um, that's what Joel Salatin says to do. A lot of a lot of people do just try to cut the veins um, in non-kosher slaughter. People that are doing neck cutting for slaughter, um, you actually have to use a smaller knife, and it doesn't give as good of a cut. The bleed out isn't as good. Um, the the veins are more likely to become occluded, which is they 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 shrivel up and they stop releasing blood, um, because you have to kind of position a little knife in there, it will actually cause more pain the way that in order to just reach the, the little veins here and there. So um, actually making a big, large cut is preferable in a lot of ways um, from a welfare perspective, in my opinion. So, okay, so that's the first thing, the shiur shchita. Does anybody have any questions about shiur shchita? Um, I have a question. I, I came a little bit late, so you might have addressed this. But I'm just, I've always been curious um, with all the, when there was all those animal sacrifices, was that, were the rules sacrificed animals different than kosher slaughter? Were they sacrificed in the same kosher same way. Same way. Same way, yeah. They were not different except for with uh, like pigeons that were killed with a fingernail. So only with birds were killed differently. Um, there wasn't chickens weren't eaten back then until um, late second temple period, but um, but only in terms of the slaughter of birds was there any difference. Thank you. But with the mammals, it was the same. Um, and a lot of the and they really um, like the things which aren't kosher in the back of an animal, the parts of animals which aren't kosher, the halit. A part, some of that is not kosher to eat because it was sacrificed in the temple. Um, in the temple, you weren't allowed to eat the chalev, which was the intestinal fats of the animal. And, um, and, and similarly today, we follow a lot of those same rituals partially in the way that we um, slaughter animals in kosher. Any other questions? Okay, good. All right, um, if anyone wants to jump in with a question, it's good, but otherwise we will go to the five disqualifying acts the kamisha poslashita all right so um so we understand what we have to check we have to check the sophocles and the trachea now this is understanding how we have to check and when we understand the act of shita the the thing that we're doing the way that we make the cut we there are five things which we're not allowed to do these are called the kamisha poslashita the five disqualifying acts um, which disqualifies shkita. And in the Shulchan Aruch, it gives a very strong statement about these acts. And these are really the most important things to know about shkita. 
And what he says is, any butcher that does not know the halachas of shechita, okay, the laws of shechita, um, uh, um, it is asur, it is against the rules to eat from his shechita, from his slaughter, okay? The eluhen, and these are the rules that he that is being mentioned here. Shiha drasa chalada hagarma beikor, and the five things are shiha is pausing, okay? Drasa is chopping, chalada is covering, hagarma is missing the cut, cutting outside the permitted area. I call it a miscut, and ikor is tearing. If you do any one of these five things. Your shechita is not going to be kosher. So um, going down over here, we can kind of go one by one and talk about what that is. So when you have pausing, all right, you, um, let's just uh, go like this. And I'm just going to, this part, so you can see me a little bit. All right, so we have here, Pausing. So if you're, I've got here a kosher knife, all right? And I'm making a cut. So pausing, I lift the knife and I put it back down on the animal, right? So it's a pausing, going back and going back down. Um, today we're a little more strict than that. And we just say any kind of pause. So even if I flinch, if I just lift it up and down, if I kind of stop and I'm not exactly sure what happened, any kind of pausing is not going to be kosher, all right? Next we have covering. So that means that the back of the knife is covered during the shkita when I'm doing the slaughter. All right. So if if I am so now, <clears throat> there's a few ways that can happen. One thing is if I'm cutting, let's say, a very big animal like a cow, and I'm cutting into it, and the wound closes over my knife, and my knife is covered, that wouldn't be kosher. Another way is if I use a very pointy knife. And I was to dig into the animals, burrow. Sometimes people call this burrowing because what you might do is burrow into the animal with a sharp knife. Um, so, and even like one of the things that I've seen is some people will take, uh, I've seen it on sheep and on ducks and things, and somebody will stab into the neck of an animal and then pull the knife out of the animal going backwards. So I'll take the knife like this, let's say. Here's the neck. Okay, and I'll stab into it and then pull the knife out. And that knife is completely buried inside the animal, stabbing. Okay, so that's not allowed either. Next, we have drasa, which is chopping. Sometimes people think this is pushing, but that doesn't really make any sense because you have to push to cut anything. If you don't push, you're just you're just moving your knife back and forth in midair. Okay, but what is drasa? Drasa means chopping, and they say like one cuts a turnip or a pumpkin. So when you have a turnip or a pumpkin, you'll have like a big hard thing and you have to chop down generally, chopping down. What you have to do in shrit is you have to use a sawing motion back and forth, back and forth. Before somebody mentioned the one motion, right? Swift motion. Now, a lot of people think that means one swift motion this way, just one cut. We actually don't want to do that in, in kosher. We want to generally do at least one, two, forward, one and back. That minimum, you can do more than that, but you should do at least one back and forth. If you do one one way, it might be kosher in some circumstances, but we generally don't do that. We go one back and forth in this. Okay, so we go. We're doing a sawing motion as we're going down instead of a chopping motion. Chop, chop, chop. Okay, that's another piece. Next one is hagarma, miscut. So 
Um, generally, what this requires is cutting below the voice box of the animal and above the bottom of the neck. Gives you a very wide swath on the neck where you can cut, all right? But uh, generally just on the neck, on the front of the neck and below the voice box. And the voice box is pretty close to the top of the, of the, of the neck, to where the neck meets, that your voice box is right at the top of your trachea. So um, it's pretty high up. So it gives you pretty much the whole neck. Um, now next is, and the last one is ecor, which is tearing. And you can tear with your hands. If you pull the, the signs, if you, if you handle the animal roughly, especially with the chicken, with the small bird that can happen, less doesn't happen with cows, less, much less likely to happen with sheep, but especially with small birds, it can really happen. Um, but the more common way of tearing would be with using a knife, which has serration, okay? Serrated knife, it tears, it tears through things. And a shrita knife uh, does not tear things because it is a straight edge, smooth straight edge knife. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that afterwards. Um, <clears throat> now, so we're very strict on all of these um, on all of these rules. Can anybody think about why some of these rules are there? What, what are just some? We don't know. We don't have any. Never in any of the halacha or in the Torah or anywhere does it say exactly these rules are here for this reason. Um, but what are some rules that people can, some ideas that people can think of that can, uh, of why some of these rules might be there? Well, if you tear the flesh in the process of doing the shrita, then you could be accused of creating a wound that would make it a trefa as opposed to have just done the kosher shrita. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's an interesting idea. It's um, probably not, um, the, the trefa has to be a pre-existing wound before the shrita. So now since you're shechting it, if you were allowed to tear, that really wouldn't be an issue, but, um, but you're not allowed to tear, um, but that actually makes it an avela. So if you have a problem with the shrita, if you do the shrita wrong, instead of being a trefa, where it's a mortally wounded animal, it's an animal which has died through non-kosher slaughter means, which is called a nevela, nevela, okay? Um, but uh, interesting idea. Any 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 other ideas from anybody? Um, suffering. How do you think? What what might cause suffering here? Well, a, a jagged edge, a, a delayed process could inflict more pain upon the animal. Right. Yes. Jagged edge, delayed process. Those all could inflict more pain. Um, other things that could inflict pain. Any ideas here? If it were slow. All right, if it's slow, okay. Um, yeah. Like if you needed to move the animal in some way to chop, that may cause some distress on the animal's part that we want to avoid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. Um, okay, good. So. Got some ideas. I think we we have tearing. We have an idea that tearing would cause um, an increased amount of pain, at least, let's say, if you're cutting an animal and tearing its flesh rather than slicing through its flesh. Um, there's an idea that pausing can cause um, more pain or more you know, distress in an animal if you're just taking a long time to slaughter. Uh, uh, covering. So covering, what we know is that when you step into an animal, 
if, if, if somebody, when people have stabbed into animals, they show reaction to the cut. They show strong reaction to being stabbed. And the same is not true for if you're making the cut in a kosher manner, all right? Stabbing, burning into it, animals show a strong reaction to that. Um, and now chopping also, if you're chopping straight down, instead of moving it back and forth, there's an, extra, there's an added pressure. Um, you, have to, you have to put a lot more pressure than if you're moving back and forth. And that also shows a stronger reaction than when you're moving the knife back and forth. All right. So all of these, and, and so now when I'm talking about this, all of these things are with modern scientific tests have shown this, have shown that um, when these things aren't followed, uh, the animal shows uh, great, shows pain reaction. And with shkita, animal might show little to no reaction to a cut. And we'll talk about a little bit more about that in the next section here. But what seems pretty clear is that these laws are at least partially there to reduce or eliminate animal suffering, okay? And um, it's a very advanced system, especially when you're looking at 2000 years ago for producing, reduced suffering in, in animals during slaughter. All right, so- Rabbi, I have a question? Yeah, sure, go ahead. In, in your experience in the slaughter, what percentage of the, um... Of the slaughters are not end up not being kosher because the the the, the slaughterer flinches or 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 some other one of the five rules is violated, and what happens to those animals? If if one of the chamishapusesh are violated, the um, <clears throat> the animal is ruled not kosher, and it depends on the plant. Oftentimes, in the chicken plants, chickens, poultry today are very very um, low value and they'll throw them away. It uh, depends on the plant. Some plants will give them away to the workers. Some plants um, will throw them out. Some plants will send them to not kosher. Um, and also with poultry, it is not, it's not that common. There's not that much that turns out not kosher. The actual amount that this happens is very rare. Uh, a skilled shochet will rarely ever mess up a shechita so that it's not kosher. Now he might still do a worse cut or a better cut in terms of welfare, in terms of a really skilled cut, but to meet the basic guidelines for kosher, it's it's rare. It is less than ninety nine per you know less than one percent where they will really mess this up. Um, and messing up badly is, is even more in uh, with the skilled shofar. Um Now with a mammal plant, uh, mammals have a lot of trefot, a lot of animals which are deemed generally to be not kosher um, because of pre existing conditions. So those animals have a setup for selling all their non-kosher meat. So in that kind of place, that would just go into the non-kosher um, part of the plant. And it always, it's never wasted or thrown out or anything. Sometimes in the chicken plants, they are, but not in the beef plants or lamb plants or anything like that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna share the screen again and we'll go back to the uh, document. All right, so now we have the chalif. And the second, the shechita knife. All right. So, all right. So um, here's some of the basics here. Behold of our, so, you know, what is, what is, the, what is kosher to shecht with? All right. Behold of our talush shuchtin bo. One may start with anything that's, that's talush, which means it's separated, separated from the ground. So that means you can't take a tree and take a branch and sharpen it and use it to slaughter something um, while the branch is still attached to the tree. 
right? It has to be detached from the ground. Um, whether it's with a knife, whether it's with a rock, whether it's, it's with a kormit, um, is the thin, it's like these reeds that they would have from the lake that were, I guess were very sharp back then. Um, uh, okay. Hagas hanikra ishpidnya. They had this name, ishpidna, back then. And things like this, from the things that cut. All right. And this, they must have a sharp edge and not have a flaw in it, not have a pagam or a nick. Flaw, nick is another word that's used for that. So today we just use knives. We don't use rocks. We don't use reeds from the ocean. You certainly could use those things if you if you got them to be kosher quality, but that's not what's practiced today. Today we have plenty of knives and we all just use metal knives. Um, but, but the most important thing here is that the, the edge of the knife should be sharp and should not have any flaws. So not only do we not use a serrated knife, we don't want to have any nicks or flaws in the edge of our knife because that is like a little serration. A nick or a scratch in your knife is like a little serration within it. All right. And um, what we say is like the that is even the size of a of of a hair. That's uh, a hair's breadth. So even a very, very small nick um, in the edge of the knife will render it to be not kosher. And if you slaughter with that kind of knife, you have trespassed on ikor, on tearing the neck, all right? And your animal will be in a vela that you shechted, okay? So that's one really important piece about the knife. Next really important piece of the knife, Okay, and one who cannot approximate. So there are situations where you can use a shorter shechita knife within the base halacha, within the shulchan aruch, what he says. You can use a very short knife to slaughter animals with, but today nobody does it. Everybody follows the Ramah. This is Ramah and Shulchan Aruch, eight, uh, chapter 8 of your idea. The Ramah says, one, they can't, the time is a hard time approximating and being careful about certain halachic matters, which are much too complex for me to get into right now. He just uses a knife that's twice, at least twice as wide as the neck of the animal, which is being shechted. And this everybody does today. Nobody ever uses a knife that's um, less than two necks. Maybe you'll use a knife that's just a little over one neck, but generally we try to have the knife should be the width of two necks of the animal within it, all right? And so we have these long knives, all right? So if you look at the design requirements, some of the most important ones, and now we'll look at a real shechita knife here, okay? This is a chicken knife. We want it to be twice as long as the neck of the animal. So a chicken neck, this is about five inches. A chicken neck is about an inch to two inches, okay? Just depending on the size of the neck, or this is basically a poultry, a knife for poultry. So you can do veal, which are very short, and you could do turkeys, but this will kind of fit any length and it's going to be more than twice the width of any of any chicken or, or turkey or goose or any of that thing. So this is a poultry knife, all right? Now, another thing that we can see with this knife is it does it has a blunt end, okay? Does anybody know what why it might have a blunt end instead of having a sharp end at at the tip like some of the other knives uh, that we know are. So you won't stab. Right, so we don't stab. We're trying to avoid chalada. 
Okay, what else is one other thing what also will help us avoid if there's no sharp tip? That's the main one, but there's another one also. Okay, covering. the other one. Covering. Uh, covering. So we have covering. Yeah, it does. That was um, uh, the stabbing is like covering. The other one is tearing because that sharp little tip can also tear into the animal, right? So it can also tear the tear the sign. Um, <clears throat> now, the other thing that we have here is twice as long as the neck of the animal. What does that help us avoid when it's twice as long as the neck of the animal? And this is so why that when not. you no, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Oh, so that way when you're doing your your sawing motion, you don't uh, you might so you don't slip out of the neck right. and then pause. So that helps you do that sawing motion. It helps us avoid dress up, okay? And um, and that was the thing. You could have a smaller knife, but you might accidentally basically do dress up. You have a smaller knife. Today, we only do the longer knife. It also kind of helps us one other thing. It's not mentioned in the halakha, but there's one other thing that will also help us not have when we have that long, nice knife. Helps us with sawing and one other thing. Can anybody think of it? I'll give you a hint. Pausing. Um, okay, so uh, it helps us. So when we're going back and forth, we're not like slipping off. You kind of said that also though, because you're not slipping off, right? So it helps you do the long, smooth and, um, and controlled motion and not have to, not, not, uh, not have any shihiya, all right? So as we can see, it does a lot. Now, the other thing that we have with this knife um, and actually uh, is, is uh, one other thing actually, but before we talk about that, I'm just gonna show you the other knives, right? So that is a, that's a chicken knife, okay? That's a poultry knife. Now we have here, this is a sheep knife, okay? This is about 10 inches. That one's about five. Sheep knives are about 10, okay? This is a sheep knife. Um, these knives are all basically custom made. This is a Japanese brand, which is uh, not readily available, but it's very nice. Uh, let me show you. See that got the Japanese writing. There is a writing. request to maybe um, stop sharing your screen so that people could see it full screen. Oh, that's right. Sorry about that. Yes, I'm gonna stop sharing the screen. Forgot about that. Okay, here we go. This is the this is the Japanese knife. This is made by a Japanese knife uh, making house, a very old one, and uh, they just started making these a couple of years ago. Um, most of these, a lot of these knives are made in Europe. Um, they're generally very high quality very expensive. So the, this knife will go for $200 for a high end, for a, not even a high end chicken knife. All right. And the sheep knives can go for three, four, $500. And um, this is a cow knife. Okay. This is a lower end cow knife. This one's made in China. You can see it has a cheap handle. And this was only, I think, $150. A high end cow knives can go anywhere from four hundred to a thousand dollars just depending on the manufacturer and stuff i do have some higher end ones here but um this is a lower end one okay um so you can see we have the different size knives now the last piece is that we make our knives so sharp and smooth right and um is what it says in the halakha so uh we don't want the, the, the knife to have any kinds of nicks in it. So this is a knife I used, I'm teaching somebody shechita right now. We were just shechting a chicken, chickens with it today, okay? And so before every chicken that you shech, you have to check the knife with your fingernail. This is how we do the check, okay? Um, this is a very sharp knife. 
and we go like this up we check we check up and down on the knife the best way to check is 12 times up and down in the middle once up and down on this side once and up and down on this side once um well you do twice on each one um you can't just do one up and down if you're uh stressed for time but um this is how you check okay this is how we check and what we want is a knife that feels smooth like oil or glass is how they is how we like to say it it is just very very smooth you don't feel any kind of nicks or roughness or anything and this thing's just about perfect right now um and maybe cleaned up a little bit before tomorrow so now the way that we do this is we use our sharpening stones so we have all different kinds of grits um well when you get a new street knife also it does not have an edge on it like when you get a knife from the store uh, a kitchen knife it has an edge on it and it's already ready to, to cut with shrita knives are not you have to make your own edge and this is how you make the sharpest edge possible is when you make your own edge and what we start out with is the 220. Some people today don't use it because they don't know how to sharpen and their teachers are just telling them to use the 1000, but they don't know what they're doing. So you know what you're doing. You start with the 220, you make a low, low angle and you make a burr is what it's called. And that is when the metal of the knife starts to curl up on one side as you are sharpening. Okay. Metal starts to curl up. You break that burr. You make a higher end on the other side. Metal starts to curl up the other way. And then you go to your higher grits. You make a burr with the 1000 stone. That's a higher grit stone, all right? Do the same thing. And then you polish and finish with a polishing stone, which might be six to 8,000 grit, okay? This is an 8,000 grit stone. And you, you, you bring it up to a mirror finish where it's perfectly smooth. And then sometimes you'll take a natural stone like this, and this is a good finishing stone, um, working between your shritas or finishing, and it gives an extra sharp, edge to your knife. So there's a lot of different stones. I have like 20 stones. I have like a crazy amount, um, but um, you only really need like two or three. Can you explain what grit means in this context? Yeah, so grit is the roughness of the stone, okay? So you have a 220 grit stone is very rough, and the higher you get up in the grits, the, um, the, the smoother it is. Now, what the grit is, the grit, the lower grits, it makes scratches in your stone, in, in your knife, makes scratches in the metal. And so the 220 will actually, the scratches, they're like little, they're little nicks. You can get out big nicks with it, but it leaves a bunch of little nicks. You can't slaughter off a 220 because it's still, it's not considered kosher. You can, then you can work your 1000, still lives little nicks, but they're much smaller, but you can still, it still feels very rough. Your, your, your knife afterwards feels rough. It doesn't smooth like, like oil on there, like, like glass. It doesn't just go up and down. They kind of get stuck a little bit, um, but it's closer, all right? And then you and then you get rid of those scratches with an eight thousand, and you can or with a six thousand, and you get those scratches off, and it still leaves scratches, but they're so small they're not noticeable, and you've got a mere finish on your knife, and on your edge, and that is considered to be a kosher knife after you've worked off a six or eight thousand. That's the general, generally approved of standards today. You don't need to use the natural stone, but you can. The natural stone is also very high grit. Okay, and what you're left with is a perfect knife. So. And then we check with our fingernails to make sure that knife is kosher. Now, let's say we have a kosher knife, okay? And we give it a little, a little bit like that, right? I just touch it. I just barely touch it and I'll feel it and I will feel that nick and that will not be a kosher knife. All right, I already have some nicks in here before but I can feel that nick I just made and it stops my fingernail, I can just feel it, okay? 
So all you need is just a little touch. Now, the metal will give a nick much easier than, a, than the neck of an animal will because the neck is much softer than the metal. Okay, but the backbone of the animal, if you hit the backbone, can cause a nick. Sometimes things on the skin, feathers, if you have a little dirt on there, all kinds of things can cause nicks on your knife. All right. Um, so if you get a nick like that, you have to go back, you use your 1000, you bring it up to the 1000, and you bring it back up to the polish that you need. And that's how, how many you times can you slaughter. Can I, how many times can you slaughter with a knife? Yeah. Thousands, thousands and thousands and thousands. Oh, you mean without working it at all or without getting a nick? What do you mean? Before you re have to resharpen. Well, that really depends on the quality of your edge and a lot of different factors. What, what kind of animals you're shechting, the quality of your knife. Um, but I might, you know, just give it a little bit of a, the, the, the 8,000 will hone your knife. And in between slaughters, I'll generally just stick with the 8,000. That's plenty. Um, unless I'm slaughtering cattle, sometimes I need to go back to the 1,000 to get it a little sharper. Um, we used to have in my factory in Nebraska, um, some days the cows, if the, it was freezing cold out, the cows would come in there and their skin would be frozen, frozen solid almost. And so two or three cows and your knife was dull and you had to resharpen your knife, go back to the 1,000 and give it a little sharpening and then go back to the 8,000. So everything really depends on, on the situation, but people will go all day with on, uh, on chickens and, and only ever go on their, you know, on their high grit stone to get it resharpened, you know, every hundred birds or every 10 birds or 50 birds, just depending on the person. But oftentimes I'll go between every slaw, every couple slaughters, I'll go on the, I'll go on the high grit stone just to give it, give it a little go, you know, just give it a little, a little sharpness. Okay. So. Now, this is a sharp knife. I'm gonna show you about um, how sharp the knife is. One way to check is you can check with a um, sheet of paper and I can show you the knife is very sharp. Um, well, I actually usually like to do, but I didn't bring this time a kitchen knife, but when you have a kitchen knife, it's, it, it will catch, it will tear this, but this gives you a really sharp, you can even do very, very little pieces. And that's how you know it's a very sharp knife, okay? So, now that's a very sharp knife. Another way that I check the sharpness of a knife is, and this is the way that I usually do it when I'm slaughtering, is shave, okay? So I will actually, uh, I think I have a little spot right there. I don't know if you can really see it there, but I will actually go and shave. Now you can't really see it so much in the light, but it'll just take your hair right off. So my wife doesn't like it when I shave my arms, so I mostly shave my legs, which I'm not gonna do in front of you guys, but I will actually, I roll up my legs and I just, uh, and I just give it a little shave and I just, I'll just check, check the sharpness, okay? And that's just a good way to check. Um, I like it better than the paper. It's a little bit more exact and we'll show you if it's just sharp enough, but you can see also the small knife, right? Very, very sharp. Okay, good. So let's, go to the last section here. Uh, well, some of the last, there's a lot. <laughs> there's so much information in Shrita. Let's just go on forever. But uh, we're going to go back to the sheet um, and we're going to go to some of the stunning information. Okay. 
Um, we do have a question in the chat. Sure. Someone asked yes. if every shochet has their own set of knives. Absolutely, yes. Every shochet has their own set of knives. Sometimes, um, like some of these big plants, you have one guy shechting, one guy checking the knives, and one guy working the knives. Like I was at a plant, and they were doing 500 a day, and these guys would work five-hour shifts, but it was three guys at a time, and one guy would only slaughter, one guy would only check the knives, and one guy would only work the knives. And that keeps everybody very fresh. Unlike um, if you're just a standard slaughter, um, non-kosher slaughter, you have a Mexican or a, uh, you know, some kind of foreign worker that's here, very mild, you know, very um, minimum, minimal training, maybe five, 10 minutes, and they start doing whatever stunning work that they do. Um, with kosher, you have, um, you know, somebody that's been trained for at least, you know, a few months before they can slaughter on the line and uh, the very highly trained workers and they not work. And then those non-kosher workers will just be working all day, eight hours a day, just constant the kosher, because you have to make sure everything is hundred percent kosher. Um, you really have to make sure those workers are fresh and that they know what they're doing. They can feel the nicks, they can do the slaughter properly. So they really have like a lot of workers, a lot of breaks, and it's a, it's a different kind of work environment than the rest of the slaughterhouse because you need to be at a higher level. You you your rate of failure is zero. That's the acceptable rate of failure. It might happen more than that, but that's actually the acceptable rate of failure is zero. So you need to have extra extra people. Whereas acceptable rate of failure from the rest of the slaughter might be five percent. It's fine, you know, because then they can move that much faster. Okay, so um, yeah, and if anybody has any other questions, you want to throw them in the chat, and then you can just. Um, uh, say them out because I want to kind of move through some of this other stuff here. So now we touch talk a little bit about stunning. And um, uh, so in the rest of the industry, the, the non-kosher industry, stunning is the norm. Now, a lot of people have positive, they, you know, they just say, well, stunning is just immediate and it's just this wonderful thing. And kosher is just evil and the animals suffer. And um, stunning is not evil and it's not horrible. And it has its flaws and it has its benefits and so does kosher. And we can kind of look, or I want to just kind of go through some of the different forms of stunning. And first thing is so you can understand them. What I've done is I've talked about kosher and you probably have a pretty decent understanding of kosher now. But what you don't have a decent understanding is stunning. And stunning, there's a lot more different types of stunning. And so I just want to give you like a breakdown of what there is. And so as you can think about it. So we have first mechanical stunning. A mechanical stunning is uses a generally a captive bolt to render the animal unconscious slash kill it. There's a penetrative captive bolt which penetrates the skull, um, and that is usually fatal. It destroys the brain, destroys everything, and is generally fatal immediately. Um, not now, um, non-penetrative bolt is usually non-fatal. It hits the it hits the head, hits the skull, and but does not penetrate it, and it usually will not kill the animal. The animal will usually wake up from that. Um, but it does uh, generally cause it to be stunned, to be rendered unconscious, all right? Now, there's a few different types of bolt guns, um, captive bolt guns. There's gunpowder actuated, which uses a little blank bullet. And usually these are small, and they're just pressed by hand. And it, and it, and it puts a pretty small bolt into the head. And that can be used for cattle and for sheep generally, used for cattle and sheep. And then there is a pneumatic captive bolt, which is much bigger, uses compressed air, 
and usually puts in a much bigger bolt, big more pressure, and uh, much more suitable. Um, it's more reliable, and also sometimes um, uh, um, pushes air into the brain and liquefies the brain as it's going in. So these are very um, um, intense. Now there's also spring-loaded captive bolt guns, not very common. They're just really for poultry and like um, small mammals like bunnies and things like that will be used. And they're not common at all, but I, um, they are here and there. I do have one. I just wanted to see what it was like. I bought it for like 50 bucks, um, but it's, um, it's a spring-loaded, but it's really, it's not used. Definitely not in the industry. It's not used only by like home people. All right. Um, so as we said, this mechanical stunning is primarily just performed on mammals, large and small mammals, sheep, goats, um, not usually so much on pigs, um, but sheep, goats, um, and, and cattle is probably the most common, definitely for cattle and, and sheep and goats, the most, most common method of kill. Definitely for cattle, sheep and goats, maybe a little bit less. All right, and then you have electrical stunning. Electrical is usually non-fatal. Sometimes it is fatal, depends on the thing, but it's uh, oftentimes non-fatal. Um, there's electric, uh, there's handheld electrical stunning, all right? So um, with poultry, it's usually using an electric knife where they put an electric knife up to the neck of the animal. It gives it a shock, and then immediately the animal is killed with that same knife. Um, there's heart and brain electrodes, which are put on, um, can be used usually for, for pigs and for small mammals like sheep and goats and things like that. And um, those are just electrodes that are placed on the heart and, and or the brain, and they cause cardiac arrest. They cause, uh, they cause the animal to, um, to, to, uh, be, to, to become stunned. Um, there's automated forms of stunning, which are generally used for poultry. This is very common for poultry. The most common way poultry is killed. There's nine, over 9 billion broilers killed in the United States each year. The majority of them are killed through electric water bath stunning. That's where the animals are shackled and they put through an electrified pool of water and, um, and that renders them unconscious. And then they're killed by an automatic knife and then they're scalded. So a lot of uh, issues with that form of stunning welfare issues. All right, so um, general head stunning. There's a new form of stunning like in Europe where um, there's special electrodes which this is for chickens where they actually measure each chicken's resistance and, and it's more um, effective and comfortable than electric water bath stunning. Uh, it's complex. Um, it's very uncommon, but it's a new system that's being developed. Um, so electrical stunning is primarily performed on poultry, pigs, and sheep, right? It does happen on cattle sometimes, but it's not that common for cattle. And then the last one is controlled atmospheric stunning, um, sometimes known as gassing. Right, so um, this is pretty common on pigs and, and increasingly common on, um, on poultry, um, especially in Europe, it's already been very common, becoming more common in the United States on poultry. So they're gas stunning, um, which puts in um, different types of gases like argon, nitrogen, and, and or carbon dioxide, puts in mixes, and basically suffocates animals to death. It's supposed to do it in less painful ways. You could use helium, and that is known to be a painless way that you don't even notice and the animal just passes out. People had that happen. People died in um, blimps before from that and not known that they were gonna die and they'll just fall over like that. But you can't do that for animals because helium is very expensive. So it's not, it's not realistic, it's not enough of it. So um, uh, gas stunning uh, 
does cause a lot of distress in animals. People say it's so great and it's so good, but there is actually a lot of distress caused by it, but there are also benefits, which we can talk about in a minute. Uh, if we have just a few minutes, uh, I'll try to get to it. And then there's laps, low atmospheric pressure stunning. And this actually changes the atmospheric pressure. And it's a very new thing. It's performing on poultry, it's always fatal. And, um, and some people believe it's more humane. Uh, there's reasons to think why it might be more humane than the gas stunning but we're not really 100% sure on that uh, one way or the other yet. There's still tests being done. And what we can see with most of these is they're very automated forms of slaughter, especially when you go to the poultry where um, they're trying to automate things as much as possible. And um, that really lowers the cost of production. And, um, but what we see in, in the laws of Shrita is automated slaughter is not allowed in kosher slaughter. And I think um, when you're starting to look at non-kosher and kosher slaughter, one of the biggest things that you can look at is automation. And stunning has been developed with the modern industrial agriculture. Um, it's been created and developed side by side with that and really adheres to that model. And, um, and kosher does not. Kosher is based off of an older agricultural system where animals are dealt with individually. And now when you have kosher in the modern system, their problems have developed with kosher because it wasn't created for the modern system. And there's things that they've done to speed up kosher, to increase production that have created welfare issues. But there's also things that you're avoiding like mass gassing animals that we don't do, that it's clearly against what I would say is the values and, and the laws and the spirit of kosher. So if we look at the this other section from Shulchan Aruch, uh, your idea, um, chapter um, seven, we look at this, uh, this portion here. It says, So a person can put a knife at the end of a wheel and turn that wheel and use it to shech the animal. Okay, just putting this, quickly, um, but he's, and he's, and he can do it because he's using his hands. He's using his own power still he's on the wheel, but right. The im hamayim is but if water turns the wheel, and this was the kind of automated machines they had back then, they didn't have electricity, but they did have machines that would be automated through water coming down and turning a wheel, you know, through an old kind of windmill. The hamayim is hamayim and and then and that is where the um the 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 neck is right and if the water rotates and and um and and that causes it to be slaughtered that causes the animal to be slaughtered from the water it's unacceptable um and later it says the reason why um it's kosher when you're doing it with your hands is because it's from koach adam has to be from the from the from uh, the core from the strength from the the force of man and not from the force of machine and i think this is a big difference here is that we're always doing kosher through our own force and we're not putting an intermediary there a machine to do it for us and i think there's a big difference there between kosher and non-kosher now if you're looking at um animal welfare between the two there's um I'll try to do this real fast, but there's just there's there's three main things that we're going to be that you look at. 
One is pre-slaughter restraint and handling of animals. So, so catching the animal, transporting it to the slaughterhouse and handling it before slaughter. That's one piece of welfare that we have to look at when we're looking at any slaughter and assessing what kind of welfare impacts it has on the animal. Um, <clears throat> so um, with this, you really, there's no necessary difference between kosher and non-kosher and generally the standards are pretty much the same with both. You can catch the way you have to catch animals and transport them and handle them before slaughter is mostly the same except for atmospheric stunning systems where you'll see a bit of a difference. So um, if we look down here at poultry with atmospheric stunning, the animals are kept in cages and they're put straight into the gassing chamber and they're gassed and, or the atmospheric pressure is changed and that will kill them automatically. And that does improve welfare that you don't have to take each animal out of the cage. It, when an animal is taken to the slaughterhouse, especially a bird, it's taken and they're, they're gathered and they're put in these cages that are unusual to them. They're taken to a new unusual location and they experience high amounts of stress, birds during slaughter, higher than usual amounts of stress. And one of the, and then a big, and then another stressor is when they're taking them out of the, out of the cage individually. Now, sometimes you don't have to take them out of the cage individually with some systems like uh, Empire Poultry has a system where they're kind of all spilled out of a big truck, um, which is also stressful, but not as stressful as being taken individually out. And so there's things that can reduce that, but um, generally, so atmospheric stunning has a benefit there, right? Um, and, but electric stunning, um, if you look at electric stunning, animals are handled, also in kosher stunning, animals are handled before they're slaughtered. They have to be taken out of the boxes and prepared for slaughter. Now, after the electric stunning, they're usually, they're usually shackled for a prolonged period of time. They're put on shackles, which causes them stress, they're hung upside down, that's been shown to cause stress. All right, and then they're killed eventually at some point down the line, they maybe go through the electric water bath, and this is a very stressful, long process for them. With kosher, animals are usually killed quickly after handling. So after they're taken out, they're usually killed immediately and then placed in a kill cone or on the shackle and they're usually dead within seconds, okay? So kosher has a benefit um, as opposed to electric stunning in that, in that situation. Now, sometimes kosher does put on shackles, especially with turkeys, their animals are shackled first. There's a welfare downside. Now, what you can see here there's upsides and downsides to kind of everything you do. Everything has an upside and a downside. There's none of these systems that are just like perfect. The animal just like uh, goes to sleep and dies somehow, all right? The, this is not what killing animals for food is. It, it, it causes suffering. Um, <clears throat> definitely any kind of larger scale is required for today's uh, uh, consumers and, and, and the modern world. With mammals, um, there's upright slaughter, there's inverted slaughter, there's shackle and hoist, and shackle and drag slaughter. Um, the modern um, non-kosher pretty much always uses upright slaughter, and that is the most humane. Kosher, you can do upright, but some kosher, because of uh, misreadings of halakha, have, uh, do inverted slaughter, where they invert the animal on its back during slaughter. Um, the OU has shown that this is a misreading of the halakha, they're not reading the law correctly, it's a total, very dumb misreading actually, but it's very common. In Israel, they require inversion during slaughter. The shackle and hoist, shackle and drag was a way of inverting the animals before they had the inversion machines and that's done in South America, but is being phased out because it's very inhumane. So we're seeing here kosher can be done well, it can be done badly, all right? Okay, and then there's the pain from the, from the cut. Pain from the kill is another thing that we look at when we're looking at welfare during slaughter. 
<clears throat> so one of the biggest questions is, does it hurt when the animal is killed kosher from the kosher cut? Well, we've established that it at least reduces pain greatly through kosher because you're not stabbing, you're not chopping, um, you're not tearing the animal's neck. And this has been shown to, um, to either uh, cause little to no reaction to the kosher cut. That's in Temple Grandin's experiments with cattle. She found that animals either didn't react at all from any kind of skilled kosher cut, or they reacted very minorly. Um, uh, the same as like if they have a, wa a flag waved in their face, a, a mild reaction, um, as opposed to some halal slaughter where they're doing it with small knives and burrowing them into the neck as a, not to go up against halal, but just to give as, as a counter example, where the animals reacted violently, violently to the cut. So we can see that kosher. Now, also, she had a thing where she didn't restrain, she restrained the neck very loosely, so the animal could actually move up and down. And they made the cut, and the animal didn't move at all. And I've seen myself when I slaughtered cattle that the animals um, wouldn't move, wouldn't even, would, they would just be looking around afterwards. They didn't even know their necks were cut. And so it really seems when a kosher cut is done well, the animal can't feel it or can feel it very, it's a very minor pain. All right. And similar things have been found with birds. Um, so, but at the same time, the animals are all being cut. They're being cut while conscious. Sometimes in kosher, <clears throat> the cut doesn't go so well and, uh, and it can cause some pain. Um, I've only really seen the animal react violently when a person really messes up a cut. Um, um, uh, very new people more often, but it does happen. So it's not perfect. There's not like no world of pain in there, but I think this is very minor. <clears throat> now, when you have a well-performed stunning, any well-performed stun is supposed to basically eliminate pain um, before death, okay? <clears throat> now, for when you're doing um, when you're doing mechanical stunning, um, that should kill the animal immediately, right? It liquefies the brain, destroys the brain. But there are missed shots. About 1% of shots are missed on average. And those are usually, um, they're shot right afterwards again. Um, but there is significant pain in the, in the interim. <clears throat> There's a lot of times bots and ineffective electrical stunning. Um, different things that can be not done well. Now, all these things can really be reduced to very low level with kosher, with non-kosher, if it's a really well-run slaughterhouse. And that's the biggest lesson that you should learn from all this is that it's less about what type of stunning it is, more about how well run the slaughterhouse is. Now, controlled atmospheric stunning seems to cause a lot of suffering, um, in my opinion, and there's a lot of evidence to show that it does, um, but it does benefit in terms of animals not being handled. All right, so we have the pain from the kill. Um, and then you have post-slaughter conscience. This is probably the most... Um, uh, the most worthwhile um, uh, um, a critique of kosher is talking about post-slaughter consciousness. Um, now, with chickens, let's say, animals tend to die within five to 15 seconds. They tend to experience brain death, loss of consciousness, collapse. I can't go into all of it right now and how all these things are measured. It's a little complicated. Uh, I forgot to put the small mammals. Small mammals is similar, um, but a bigger animal like a turkey will take a little longer a lot of this depends on how well the, kosher, the, the slaughterer is. I've found, Temple Grandin's found, when animals slaughtered higher up on the neck, the animal dies much faster. A lot of kosher slaughterers want to slaughter in the middle in order to reduce the chances of hagramab, doing a miscut. Um, I try to encourage, Temple Grandin tries to encourage people to slaughter higher up because the animals die faster. The biggest problem, though, occurs with large mammals, um, cattle, um, buffalo, things like that. Um, and so from studies that Temple Grand has done in a well done in a well run plant, an average cattle takes 
15 to 30 seconds to achieve brain death, brain death or to collapse, uh, have loss of consciousness. But a badly run plan can be 90 seconds plus, as I had averages of 90 seconds plus. That's mostly been reduced today. Most of the plants are better, at least in America, but it's more of a problem in South America and some other countries. Um, and a big problem with this is that especially large mammals are regularly hoisted up while they're still conscious in kosher plants today. And a lot of kosher plants, they're, they're going very fast. Once the animal's cut, they're not giving it much time, maybe 10 seconds and maybe five seconds, and they, and, they, and they have the chain around the leg and they're hoisting it up already. And so that is a real problem with kosher slaughter today that is common, uh, less common in some slaughterhouses, um, but it's really is something that needs to be addressed in the industry more. Um, so you can see there's problems with kosher, but um, there can also be benefits. Um, now, but generally we're talking about a very short period of time. And if the animal is handled, handled well before, right? It's handled properly before, it's not actually experiencing a huge amount of stress. The pain from the cut is very low because it's getting lower, non-existent at all, right? And then it's dying within five to 30 seconds, let's say, okay? We're talking about a very short period of time. There's a very short period of extra suffering, all right? Now with mechanical stunning, some animal requires more sh shots. Some animals wake up on the line. Every day we have at least a few animals that were killed not kosher in my plant wake up on the line. Um, they wake up on the line, they have to be shot again. Those animals are experiencing an incredible amount of suffering waking up on the line and moving. They shouldn't have not been shot properly the first time because that is part of the problem. That is inherent to the, that stunning method. Now, most of the animals are dead like that, but some of them are, okay? Um, uh, if, the, if it's well run, they should be cut, their neck should be slid immediately after they're shot in, in those kind of plants. So that can also be reduced. But our plant, they didn't do that because they just weren't that good. Um, now, in electrical stunning, chickens sometimes miss the water bath and are scalded alive. That's very common in electrical water bath stunning. It's been reduced a lot. It's, now, it's much more rare than it used to be. It still happens. If you have a plant that's killing 100,000 chickens a day, which is very common in these non-kosher plants, you're getting a number that are being scalded alive every day in these automated plants. So uh, my point here is that people really, um, they tend to... Um, single out kosher. But what you can see is throughout the industry, there's all kinds of issues and problems and there's benefits and good things that are done and things are being improved throughout the industry. But then when you have these bans for kosher in Europe and in other countries, um, they are clearly um, not really based on, on a good faith uh, look at the welfare issues in the industry. And they're just singling out for what is a very minuscule amount of the animal's life while completely ignoring all the other myriad welfare issues that exist within the animal industry. Um, and, uh, and they're very unfair and they're clearly um, discriminatory, these, these slaughter bans. And uh, they just end up bringing in meat from other countries. Whereas if these countries that really care about welfare so much, if they actually worked with kosher producers to create the best standards in the world, we could actually be using some of these countries to create higher and higher kosher standards and, and that would improve kosher throughout the world and, and help set a new bar for kosher rather than them just saying this is bad, you know, and, um, and just uh, and discriminating against Jews and against Muslims, which is very common as well. Um, it's really anti-Muslim and anti-Jewish, uh, the, the kosher bans. So that's it. That is my presentation. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I know it's a lot. It's very complex kosher, but I hope you all enjoyed it. And um, I don't know if we have a few minutes for questions, but I'm happy to open it up.
I think what we might do, there's a lot of questions that have come in, in the chat from this extremely interesting and evocative presentation. Um, do you think it might be okay if we send you the questions and then you can open with them or, or put, build them into the presentation on Wednesday? Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think let's do that since it's 9.15 and uh, we typically try and end a while ago. So people are, uh, are also a little bit dropping off here. Um, but I wanted to thank you for this presentation and thank you for pitch hitting. And I'm so glad we didn't try and all smush this into one hour because that would have been ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have done quite this thing. I would have done something much shorter on, on Shrita and talked about Well, I'm so, glad we, uh, I'm so glad we got the chance because this was really, really fantastic. Um, and so thank you very much. And we look forward to the continuation of this, um, talking about poultry farming and all of those chickens you mentioned at the, the beginning um, that I'm excited to learn more about. Um, on Wednesday, tomorrow night, we have a beekeeper coming. Um, so still sharp things, but I guess smaller. Um, and um, and uh, we look forward to hearing from Rabat Valia Haas on that. Um, and again, um, all of our programming in this winter's mod is still, um, you can still sign up for any part of it. And we'd love to keep learning with you here at Drisha. Um, and thank you all so much um, for joining. And again, you can drop um, questions into the chat. We will save the chat, pass it on to Rabbi Greenberg, who will get a chance to look at it in advance of um, Wednesday. All right. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thanks everybody. Thank you. Thank you.